Once more, open your Bibles to the book of Esther. Just read Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. We're going to pick up right there at verse 9 and follow the word of the Lord. I'm going to read a little bit of this episode. I'm going to stop, preach a little, and then come back and pick up in chapter 6 and, uh, and, and read again. I just want you to follow this story very, very carefully. We've talked a lot about Esther and what it means to be the, the, the right person in the right place at the right time. How God, even in ways you don't understand, is always using every single circumstance of your life. I'm not one of those that thinks God causes every circumstance, that God creates every circumstance because I know that there's sin in your life and in the world. And so sometimes what happens is is evil. It's not what God intended, but God will use everything, every circumstance, every moment. There's nothing that he won't or can't use in order to further his plans to bless our lives and to save the world. So we've talked a lot about Esther and how God is working in the circumstances of her life. We haven't talked so much about the actual bad guy, the, the evil man in the book of Esther. His name is Haman, yeah, good. His name is Haman. Haman is a wicked, evil man. It's interesting, though. He is absolutely in love with himself. Again, you're going to see that in the text today. Absolutely in love with himself. This is why he does not know the Lord, and he will never know the Lord, because right now, Haman only believes in himself. He only focuses on himself. The whole world revolves around him. He had one bad experience with one Jewish man who refused to bow down to him. Remember the story at the beginning of the book? This one man named Mordecai refuses to be impressed with Haman, and that is what caused Haman to hatch the plot to kill every Jew in the kingdom of Persia. Now remember, this is not fiction. This is a real story. This is history, and this is exactly what happened, and it's well documented. They were going to kill every Jewish person in the entire kingdom of Persia because of a plot from Haman, which all goes back to the one day that one man, one Jew, would not bow down and be impressed with Haman. So Queen Esther has done her part. She's intervened with the king. She's gone, and she's had the opportunity to ask for what she wants, which is for the king to reverse his decree to kill all the Jews. She wants to ask for this, but at this point she hasn't done that. Instead, she simply asked the king and Haman to come to a banquet, which she had already prepared. They came that day, enjoyed a banquet, and then what? The king says, what is it that you really want? What can I give to you? Even up to half the kingdom, and Esther says what? I want you to come to another banquet. This is getting ridiculous now, Esther. It it sounds like she's stalling. It seems like she doesn't know what she's doing. I don't know what Esther knows, but God knows what he's doing. So ask yourself, why two banquets? Why is this being dragged out now? Why are we just rushing to the conclusion that we're all dying to see happen? Why is it slowing down now? What is God doing if God's using everything? Ask what God is doing as we pick up in Esther chapter 5 verse 9. After the first banquet, Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. But when he saw, notice, but when he saw Mordecai, that's the same Jew that won't be impressed with him. When he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. Okay, notice that. How quickly he goes from happiness to fury. I think there's medication for that now. But look how close he goes from being really, really happy to really, really upset. Verse 10, however, he restrained himself and went on home. Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. 
He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. He's singing his favorite song now. It's about him. Verse 12. Then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. See, he still thinks this is all about him. Verse 13. Then he added, But this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife Zeresh and all of his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. Okay, picture that. 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. Okay, this would be a horrible way to die, but it was the preferred means of public execution in the Persian Empire. They simply erect a gigantic sharp pole and they drop your body on it. They impale, and that's how they would execute a a criminal. Set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased Haman. And he ordered the pole set up. Okay, stop right there. What is going on? Why in the world are there two banquets? Why didn't the very minute Esther finally got her moment with the king? And she doesn't know that she'll get another moment. You remember? She risked her life to go before the king and to have a request. It's like one shot with the king. You get one shot. And what did she ask for? She didn't say a word about the Jews. She didn't say a word about Haman and his plot to slaughter all of the Jews. She didn't even let on at that moment that she is a Jew. The only thing she asked for is a banquet, which she had already prepared. That's interesting. Already cooked it. And so the king and Haman, they come to the banquet, and apparently all they do is eat. Esther doesn't say a word about what's on her heart, not one word about the Jews, not one word about Haman. She just simply says, Haman, would you like another biscuit? Would you like more gravy? She just has a banquet. And then the king says, Esther, what do you really want? What do you really want? I'll give you anything, up to half of the kingdom. What does she say? Well, what I really want, do this same thing again tomorrow. Let's have another banquet. What, does she just love to cook? What's happening? Why suddenly, as the story slowed down, why another banquet? Honestly, we don't think like this, and so it's hard for us to see it even in Scripture. But the answer to that question, why another banquet, is one word, and the word is mercy. The word is mercy. Mercy upon whom? Who's getting the opportunity here to have a second chance? Who's getting an opportunity to make something wrong right? Who's getting mercy shown to them? Who's getting mercy in in this part of the story? Who do you think? It's Haman. Does he deserve mercy? Does he deserve it? Because honestly, he's not showing it to anybody. It's Haman's whole idea because he's mad at one Jewish man to slaughter all of the Jews in the whole kingdom. He is that evil. He has that little respect for human life. He would kill an entire race of people. Do you understand that? He shows no mercy. He has no mercy. Mercy is just that tendency to to not give people what they deserve. And this is one of those incredible instances in Scripture when a, a wicked, evil man does not get what he deserves. 
He deserves exactly what he's planning for everybody else. He deserves it now. He deserves it tonight. He doesn't even deserve his last meal. He doesn't deserve any of this. He deserves to die like he's planning the death of all of those other people. That's what he deserves, but that's not what he gets. He gets a banquet with Queen Esther and King Xerxes. He gets a banquet, and if that's not enough, he's going to get another banquet. It just burns me up. You ever watch The Apprentice of Donald Trump? Man, miracle hair. Isn't that amazing hairdo, Donald Trump? My goodness, I, I think something lives in that. But it's amazing how he gets to the end of the show every episode, and, and, and he's, he's, he's weeding them out, and he'll always say, we're talking about a, a billion-dollar company here, and we can't make mistakes like that. So, Joe, you're fired. That's what he says. You seen it? You're fired. Now, what does that mean? You're fired. What does that mean? You, you no longer work here? This is a multi-million dollar company? We can't afford doofuses like you? You're fired. That's what he says. And when Trump fires you, you're fired. You're done. Absolutely done. There is no mercy. This is a multi-million dollar corporation? You're fired. You're fired. You leave. And there's no coming back. And honestly, that's the kind of world that we live in, and that's the kind of world that you and I usually prefer. We love that. You're fired. Until, until we're the one fired. Until we are the one who really, really needs the second chance. You see, in this story, Haman is, is an evil man, a, a wicked man. But this is the amazing thing. God loves people. God loves all of the Jews that Haman wants to destroy, and God loves Haman. Of all people, God still loves him, and God is still going to hold out a second chance for him. Haman has an opportunity here to make things right. Haman himself can undo what he has done. Haman could do that, and here is a second chance for you, Haman. What are you going to do with it? When you are shown mercy, what are you going to do in response to that kind of mercy? When somebody doesn't say you're fired, but instead says, I'm going to give you one more chance, what do you do with your second chance, Haman? Well, you can see right here, what does he do with his second chance? He walks out of that banquet, not really thinking about the evil that he's planned or the, the evil that's about to happen because of his idea. He's not thinking about that at all. What is he thinking about? Himself. I must be something really special, he's thinking. I got to eat at a banquet with only the king and the queen. They must love me. I think everybody loves me. And he goes home and he starts out with his wife. That poor woman has to hear this. He's bragging about his children like she had nothing to do with it. He's bragging about his children and his wealth to his own family and friends. Oh my goodness, those poor people have to hear that all of the time. But that is him. It's exactly what he's like. I've got all of this wealth. I've got all of these children. I am the top in the kingdom. I had a banquet with the king. But you know what? All of it seems like worth nothing when I walk by and I see Mordecai sitting there not impressed with me. That burns me up. So the idea is hatched. To do what? To kill him. To kill Mordecai. It's not good enough just to wait to when Mordecai is going to die with all of the Jews here in a couple of months. That's not good enough. I want him dead tomorrow. There's a real simple scriptural principle. We're going to talk about it a little more tonight. But, but it's from the New Testament. It's from Jesus. And the basic principle is those who show no mercy... 
will receive no mercy. Those who show no mercy will receive no mercy. And Haman is a man who at this point shows no mercy. He shows no mercy upon anyone. Nobody gets a break from him. It is all about him. He focuses on himself. He shows no mercy. And while at this moment he is receiving incredible mercy, that's not going to last for him because he is a man who will not show mercy. And the basic Christian principle is if you show no mercy, you'll receive no mercy in the end. Set up a gigantic pole, Haman says. Impale Mordecai on it. And then I'll go on my merry way. That's what he does with his second chance. The question for you to really consider this morning is what are you going to do with your second chance? Because this very day represents a new opportunity for you to make things right that are wrong in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? This very day, the the very fact that you still have breath in your lungs and some measure of strength in your bones means God has given you one more chance at something today. You've got another chance. You can be a different kind of person. And honestly, in this house today, at this table today, the, the invitation is offered to you to be a different kind of person. And you know the person that Christ made you to be. Deep in your heart, you know that God wants you to live a different kind of life. Deep in your heart, you know that God did not make your mouth for gossip. Deep in your heart, you've got to know that God did not create your life just so you could make money. Deep in your heart, you've got to know that your life is more than the friends that you can have on Facebook or the popularity you can achieve in school. Deep in your heart, you've got to know that you were made for a different kind of life. And God continues to give you one more opportunity, one more opportunity to turn, to change, to live for him, to surrender to him. You have one more chance to find love. You have one more opportunity to make your marriage work. Just a a, a few more days to, to pour into the lives of your children before they're gone. Don't you understand? You have a second chance. God is not the God who looks at you and says, you're fired and you're done. God continues to show you mercy. What are you going to do with his mercy? Pick up with me. Esther chapter 6. Remember early in the book of Esther when Mordecai actually uncovers a plot to assassinate the king and he turns that in and he actually saves the king's life and it makes a newspaper but the king doesn't read the newspaper that night? And you think, my goodness, Mordecai can't catch a break. Nothing ever goes right for Mordecai. I mean, my goodness, everything would be different if the king had just read the newspaper and realized that Mordecai was a man that he owed a great favor to. My goodness, the whole story would be different but watch how God works. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, that same night, Haman's ex putting up the big pole uh, the night before the next banquet. That night, the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of the reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teres, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door of the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. Y'all know this. We all read this in the paper. King Xerxes wasn't reading the paper. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. His attendants replied, nothing's been done for him. Well, who was that in the outer court, the king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. You see, he's there early to be first in line. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is in the outer court. 
Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Now y'all know where this is going to go. When the king says, I want to do something special for, for the, most, the most pleasing man in the kingdom, what's Haman going to think? He's planning my party. He's planning my party. Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on his head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to, to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman, quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. God is funny. That is funny. God cracks me up. That's good stuff, God. Go, God. That is so good. Do that for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So, God is funny. Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for so many wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate. But Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. Listen to this. When Haman told his wife's arrest and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal for you to continue opposing him. And while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Just a few words there. I remember, and some of you may remember, when the Corvette plant had first come into town, they were having some sort of celebration, and they gave Corvettes to some of the local news guys to drive around for a day. And Tommy Newton, my brother-in-law, drove a Corvette for a day. Uh, just awesome. Tommy was as cool as everything, top down, shirt off, driving around in December. Cool as he could be. But at the end of the day, what? Tommy, car goes back, shirt back on. Yeah, back, back to your regular life. Yeah. Notice this little episode because it's really, really interesting there. Haman is humiliated because he has to take his worst enemy and lead him through town. It, it was his whole idea because he was thinking maybe that's what would be done for him, and he loved that. The king said, what could I do if I really want to honor somebody? And Haman thought, wow, okay, I'll tell you what you could do. You could maybe get one of your sports cars out of your garage, one of the king's sports cars, and, and let the man drive around in the sports car, but put somebody on the hood maybe and let him sing for he's a jolly good fellow all the way through the streets and, and dress him up maybe in, in, in the king's best tuxedo. That's the sort of picture that, that is presented. And the king says, that's great, you do that. Would you do that for Mordecai? You be the one on the hood singing for he's a jolly good fellow. So understand how things switch so quickly. All of a sudden, Haman, who thought he was everything, is, is in the front of the parade singing the song about Mordecai that he doesn't want to sing. And, and Mordecai is the one who ordinarily sits at the palace gate. He's just ordinary, plainer than cornbread. That's Mordecai. 
And all of a sudden, he is the most exalted man in the kingdom. But it only lasts for a day. And when it's over, what happens? Mordecai is humiliated, dejected. I'm sorry, Haman is humiliated and and, and dejected. Mordecai just goes back to his place. Just goes right back to his place. That whole idea of being praised and glorified, it didn't really affect Mordecai, did it? He just goes back. But Mordecai continues to swing from happiness to fury, up and down. Do you understand why he's like this? Because he gets his happiness from circumstances around him. He gets his happiness from having people adore him. And when there's nobody to adore him, he can't be happy anymore. I guess the question for us this morning is, Where do you get your happiness? What is it that just lights you up? Is it when people pay a lot of attention to you and you get what you want? It's when you got a prom date lined up and you've already got a perfect dress. And or maybe it's when you've been working out every day and you're getting those abs of steel and you just love to look at yourself in the mirror. I mean, is that what lights you up? Your diet's working somehow, the car's running well. What is it that makes you happy? Because if it's about your circumstances, understand that that's very, very fragile. Your life becomes very fragile. You'll always be way up and way down. Mordecai is a man of God, and he's not like that. When you truly find your identity and your peace and your salvation and yourself in the Lord, then honestly, that joy just remains, and you're not going up and down, up and down, up and down. Where do you find your happiness? At the end of this chapter, the weird thing is that all of a sudden, Zeresh, Haman's wife, and his friends, they've gotten smart. They're even called wise at this point. And they say something to Haman. They say, Haman, this Mordecai, he's a Jew, right? You're never going to succeed in opposing him. This is going to be fatal for you. If you really think you're going to destroy this man, you're going to die trying. That's what they tell him. What have they learned? In the course of just these 24 hours, what have they learned? What are they seeing now that Haman doesn't see? It's not stated in the scripture, but you see it, don't you? They understand that he's, he's tangled himself up with God. This Mordecai, he's a Jew, right? That's one of God's people. God's already said that he's going to bless those who bless his people, curse those who curse his people. Haman, you're never going to win if you're going to tangle up with this God. I'm asking you, what is your relationship to this God, the the God of Scripture, the the God that we worshiped around this table this morning, the God who sent his son Jesus to die for you? What's your relationship to him? We sing songs like, what a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, how he loves us, how he loves us so. We sing those kinds of songs, but is that true for your life? Do you truly have a friend in Jesus? Because honestly, if we looked at your life and you were completely honest, you and God really aren't that friendly, are you? It's much more of a, an adversarial kind of relationship. It has more to do with your running from him than your worshiping him. It has more to do with his talking and you're never listening to him, if you're really honest. It has more to do with you're coming to church and wanting some blessings from God, but honestly not really wanting God to be up in your life beginning to try to be the Lord over you and tell you how to live. It has a whole lot to do with your trying to continue to let everything be about you and just have God come along behind you and, and maybe give you some good things. That's not, that's not the kind of relationship that God is offering you. 
If you continue to oppose God in your life, if you continue to insist on having your way instead of his way, if you continue to live your life this way, I need to tell you this is not going to go well for you. If you're really thinking that you can pursue the kind of habits, the kind of lifestyle that you're pursuing now, and God's going to somehow not notice that or not someday make you answer for that, I have to tell you this is not going to go well for you. If you really think you're going to have your own way and God's going to somehow let you just have your own way for eternity, I'm telling you, you may try that, but you'll die trying that and you'll die for eternity. God is not a God that you can mess around with. God is not a God that you can take lightly. He is not a God that you're going to order around. He's not a God whose opinions you're going to change. God is God. You are not. If you really think that you're going to persist in running your own life and ignoring what God says, this is not going to go well for you. But understand something about this God. He is a God of mercy. Mercy. And the fact that you're sitting here right now listening to God's word is a sign that God at this moment is not giving you what you deserve. There is still a moment here for you to come to him, to turn your life around, to make right what is wrong inside your heart. And only Christ can do this for you. But that's the offer he's extending to you. It's about one word, and the word is mercy. God is not willing for you to perish. He's not willing for you to continue in your sins. God is giving you one more chance, one more opportunity. I guess the question for you is, what are you going to do with it? This second chance that you have right this moment, what are you going to do with it? Let's stop and pray. God, truly you are a God of grace and mercy. Forgive us, Lord, for taking that for granted, for, for simply presuming that you will always, always simply overlook our sins and you will always simply go along with what we choose. And Lord, somehow you will always ride in the back seat and go wherever we decide to take you. God, help us, forgive us. That is not how it works. If we think that we are driving and you're in the back seat, Lord, what we don't understand is that we are living a life without you. You will not be in the back seat of our lives. God, if you're going to be in our lives, you're going to be behind the wheel. You're going to be the master, the Lord. If you will not be Lord, then, Lord, we understand you, you won't be in our lives at all. We do not have the option of making you, Lord, always sit back and, and simply bless what we choose, Lord. We live by your mercy because at the present moment, you don't give us what we deserve. You are not at this moment, Lord, judging us for our sins. You're simply offering us the beautiful gift of forgiveness, the opportunity to start fresh and, and be a different kind of person. Lord Jesus, let us not walk away from this table today and miss the opportunity to have a real second chance at life, a second chance to find true happiness, a chance, Lord, to See things made right. God, there is much that is wrong with us. But there is nothing wrong with us that cannot be made right by you if we will turn to you. Lord Jesus, turn hearts back toward you before this service is finished. Bring hearts back to you. Show us mercy, Lord Jesus. Mercy.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.